Skyscrapers are twisted bones jutting up into the blackened heavens. And at the withered heart of it all is a dingy office tucked into a dilapidated slum. The door reads Blake Sky, Private Eye. stars for answers, praying to God or hoping to peer into the clockwork of everything. They try so damn hard to find hope, to watch those pinpoints of light line up just right and give them everything they ever wanted, that they needed, that they deserved. But sometimes, the stars are just wrong, and no prayer or prophecy can shake the horrible things to come. My stars had spelled out the name of Mickey O'Shea, who hadn't taken kindly to my inquisitive nature. After a less than pleasant conversation, two of Mickey's men had practiced their best Jack Dempsey impressions on me, leaving me with a few broken ribs. I spent the next two months laying low, watching my bank account slowly bleed out. I had to leave my apartment, start sleeping in the office. The local pawn shop was on a first-name basis with me. Worst of all, my clientele had vanished. Word of my run-in with O'Shea had gotten around, and people were talking, wondering what would happen to them or their loved ones if they associated with me. I was a leper, Ignored, isolated, and completely alone. You were the only one there for me. It was stupid, holding on to you. Here I was, hawking cufflinks to afford just enough to eat while you were resting comfortably on my desk. But sometimes, people don't act rationally. Sometimes, a person is willing to feel the pangs of hunger to believe their voice is being heard. I could feel my soul on your wire, loop after loop, coiling along your reel. I lied, and I told myself I kept you for the job, documenting interviews, recording case notes, that sort of thing. But deep down, we both understood you were the closest thing to a friend I had in that cold, Stygian abyss. It was me and you, Webster. It was me and you. But I got close to faltering. I won't deny it. The food had run out days ago, and the liquor was following fast. But that's when she decided to show up on my door, letting herself right in. I could feel her, silently judging my wrinkled, sink-washed laundry, my rough, unshaven face, and the heavy vapors of cheap whiskey 
lingering in the air. But she didn't turn. The sharp, staccato click of her heels tapped across the wooden floor until she came to the chair, smoothed her skirt, and she sat right down. The piercing click of her lighter cut through my liquor-addled mind like a rotwire. She produced a slender cigarette from her ornately engraved case and lit it, taking a long drag and shooting curling plumes from her nostrils. Lady was dressed to the nines. She had money, which made my heart skip a beat. Why would someone with that much green be here? Before I could say anything, her soft, sultry voice lilted through the air like music. She told me her name was Daphne Howard, and she needed my help investigating her husband for infidelity. Ever the idiot, I callously asked her why she wanted my help instead. There were any number of gumshoes in the city. Her placid, composed expression shifted only slightly, but it was like watching ripples on a still pond. After another jet of cigarette smoke rolled about in a gentle gyre, she explained her motives. Turns out that her husband, one Professor August Howard, took care of the finances. She couldn't afford a real P.I., not without drawing his attention. Lucky for her, I wasn't in any position to be arguing rates. And it seemed like easy money. This guy was no doubt another hotshot, fanning the flames of his ego with the lonely and impressionable. Wasn't the first time, and it sure as hell wouldn't be the last. I got his particulars, jotting down his favorite haunts and known associates. I discussed my rates with her, and told her I'd probably have evidence within a few days. Mrs. Howard stood up and placed her cigarette in the cheap tin ashtray amid the booze bottles on my desk. Her eyes were cold, cold as December ice, and the playful feline purr had turned into a deep, menacing growl. If he's cheating, I want him to pay. I will make him pay. That's what she said. Then she turned and walked out the door, quiet as a ghost, vanishing into the dusty gloom of the entryway. I hadn't even noticed her put the envelope of crisp presidents on my desk. True to form, all the puzzle pieces fell into place, just like I had imagined. The legwork revealed Professor Howard had a bit of a reputation on campus. Nothing overt, but it was clear the students he spent his time mentoring were disproportionately women. And this semester, one star pupil had risen above all others, Eleanor Kostansky. Both his peers and students told me the two of them were thick as thieves, almost never apart. Sure. She was acting as his assistant, but I had a hunch that his courtesy toward her was less than professional. Professor Howard also had a favorite watering hole, the elephant's heart. The owner was a tight-lipped bastard, content to polish glass and stare holes through me. It took most of the money Mrs. Howard had given me to get him talking. Each fact I pried out of him was less and less money for paltry luxuries like food or a roof over my head. But eventually I had him singing. The professor had brought other women around before, but he had traded them out one after another. And each time he did, he visited a quaint little lodging called the Exum Arms, where the rates are hourly and the walls are soundproofed. My gut told me Miss Kostansky was due to be replaced. That meant the best place to catch him was the Exum Arms. 
Anything else risked spooking him and leaving me with no evidence. I spent days watching the seedy flop house, waiting for August Howard and his mistress. I only slept the few hours the professor was teaching at the university, and it was taking a toll on me. By day three, I was tired. Day five, I was bored out of my mind. I was just about to give up on the seventh day when my luck finally shifted. There, arm in arm, were the professor and Miss Kostansky. Howard was a walking cliché. A tall, pale New Englander with tweed and a briefcase that cost more than I made in a month. That rigid posture and upturned nose broadcast one message. I am better than you. Kostansky, on the other hand, had eyes wide as saucers, gazing at her teacher like he was a god among mere mortals. She had an innocent face, cherub cheeks, and sparkling emerald eyes. Her curly auburn locks swayed wildly in the rising wind. There was a storm coming. The couple strolled into the Exum Arms, giving me a brief window to slip through the back entrance. The lock on the door was cheap. It took less than a minute to pick. I caught up to them, trailing them as they made their way into the stairwell. I was a hunter, stalking my prey across cheap carpet and creaking timber. My prey was completely unaware as I watched them walk into room 17 and lock the door. I reached into my pocket and pulled out my camera. Mrs. Howard needed proof, and nobody made a point like George Eastman. It was seedy, but private eyes can't always worry about what's right and what's wrong. All we can worry about is the truth. As I pressed my ear to the heavy wooden door, I closed my eyes and focused. Everything was muted, like my ears had been stuffed with cotton. Seconds stretched on to minutes. My mind wandered, trying to give form to the murmurs from the other side of the door. Then, the voices fell silent. My fingers traced nervous loops over the camera's frame. Had I missed my chance? Then, a shrill cry broke the silence, followed by grunting and clattering. Even with the sound muffled, the commotion was jarring. I'd had a few cases where things got loud. Some people get hot and heavy, but my gut turned. The terror in Eleanor Kostansky's voice was palpable, strong enough to make it past the door, like heat and smoke from a raging fire. I did the only thing I could do. I reared back, kicking the door in and charging through. And that was when everything changed. The professor was wrestling with Kostansky, holding an ornate dagger that gleamed even in the dim light of the room. The blade was inches from her throat, and she was losing ground. He was going to kill her. That was the only thing my mind could process. He was going to kill her. I didn't feel my hand on the grip of my snub-nosed 38, drawing and leveling the barrel at August Howard. It was some basic, primal part of my brain that pulled the trigger. The professor took the slug in the shoulder, wheeling around, collapsing to the floor, dragging Kostansky with him. As he groaned in agony, her frantic, hyperventilating sobs rose to a furious cry. She grabbed the dagger and raised it up, driving its blade into his chest with a wailing cry of fear and betrayal. She panted, eyes wide, tears streaming down her cheeks. 
blood staining her clothes. As the crisp smell of gunpowder dissipated, my mind finally caught up to my body. I grabbed Miss Kostansky by her shoulders, pulling her to her feet. She tensed up, ready to keep fighting, but I squared up to her, looking her in those panicked eyes and said, Lady, you've got to get out of here. The cops will be here any minute. She tried to speak, mouth fumbling over words, but her nerves were strung tighter than the strings of a violin. The rattled young woman motioned to the professor's suitcase and a collection of books and papers scattered about it. I hastily shoved them into the case and pressed it in her hands, urging her to move. Silently, she followed my lead as we slipped out the back. Anywhere else, people would have been lining up in the hallway, trying to catch a glimpse of the ruckus. Thankfully, people here had just as much to hide as we did. Sirens drew closer and closer, the haunting moans of a monster we could only hope to outpace. I had a 50-50 shot with the cops if I told them the truth. Kostansky had significantly worse odds if I wasn't there to vouch for her. Our best chance was to fade into the shadows and hope August Howard became just another person who died in the wrong part of town. He'd be mourned in public, but everyone would silently understand the city took him and that was just the way of things. I don't even remember the walk back to the office. My mind was a swirling tempest of questions and concerns. At some point, the clouds split and the rain had begun to fall, soaking us to the bone. Eleanor stood shivering in the hallway, clutching the briefcase to her bloodstained chest, muttering to herself. At first, I couldn't make it out, but as I leaned closer, I heard her reciting what sounded like a prayer in Polish, over and over. It was shell shock. She was clinging to something bigger than herself, ingrained in her very core. And if I was being honest, so was I. For her, it was the faith she was raised in. For me, it was the job. The litany and dogma of the detective. And now, here I am, sitting in the dark nursing a glass of cheap whiskey while a frightened and confused young woman sleeps restlessly on my couch. The city lies dead and dreaming, and here I am awake and wondering. Wondering just what to tell Daphne Howard. Wondering what makes a man like August Howard turn to murder. And wondering how many times has he gotten away with it before. I don't have the answers now. And with these storm clouds, there's no looking to the stars for answers.